Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. David Hamilton. David is an international speaker, teacher and author of eight books, including popular titles such as How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, It's the Thought That Counts and I Heart Me. And he has a first class honours degree in chemistry, specialised in biological and medicinal chemistry and a PhD in organic chemistry. I didn't even know what half those things were. So I'm like, this guy's clever. OK, that's all we need to know. And he used to work for a big pharmaceutical company. And his job was to build drugs and to, which combat uh, heart disease and cancer. And by build drugs, he literally meant build drugs. He would be the one sticking atoms together. And during this time, he became absolutely fascinated in the power of placebos, so much so that he left the industry and started researching just how our mind shapes our bodies, our health, and even our realities. So David, huge, huge honor talking to you today. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Duncan. It's great to be here. Now, this is, um, this, I've, I've had this issue on a, on a couple of occasions with, um, with, with interviews. I mean, I was, I was looking through your books and some of the things you talked about. And I was like, I just, I want to talk about everything I want to talk about, like the old stuff, the new stuff. And I was like, how can there be any sort of structure? So I'm going to apologize in advance. If I'm suddenly like talking about something and then I just <laughs> ask you something completely random, unrelated, you know, they, they, I, I normally try and find a nice little segue from questions, but mm. screw it. I think the segue is going to be gone on this interview. Yeah. That's okay. Well, that, that's kind of how my mind works anyway. <laughs> I'm going to, on one train of thought, then something else pops in and I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> you know, So that works for me. Now, I mentioned it in the intro about um, the placebos. And this was something which really, really fascinated you because you were studying these you know, drugs for cardiovascular cancer. And, you know, say a regular ju- drug might get, say, 75% of the people improving after taking that drug, you know, that's, you know, doing well. You realize actually the power of the placebo made up of what sugar and often just like blackboard chalk could get anything from like 67, 70, 73, 74% people placebo on just this this sugar tablet. I I know. And and it's amazing because years ago, people used to quote this bizarre, this statistic, the placebo effect was 35%. And that's complete not completely nonsense it's it it's it was a, an old statistic it really varies on it depends on the, the nature of the medical trial it depends on the drug it depends on the person talking to you about the drug the context it, it can vary a little from 10 percent to 99 percent it's it's so broad and so i was no i became fascinated when i worked in the industry in fact you know my main field was cardiovascular and and i found one of the things that really propelled really fascinated me at the time was one of the biggest blockbusters of the time now a blockbuster in the drugs industry is something a drug that sells over a billion dollars a year so annual sales topping a billion dollars so viagra for example is a blockbuster the sales top a billion a year Back then, one of the blockbusters was, was a cholesterol-lowering drug, something that I knew quite a lot about. And and the five-year survival rate for the drug for, for patients who'd had heart attacks or something was was 80%. But the, the placebo was 79.1%. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And it's those kind of things that used to really fascinate me. But this is where, where you know a lot of people misunderstand the placebo. We then assume that if the drug's 80, the placebo 79.1, that the drug doesn't work. That's not true at all, because people like me used to build them, as you pointed out in the intro, atom by atom. What it actually means is that your mind is so powerful that you can create your own chemistry that does the, say, that does the job that you're expecting the drug to do. 
So if you're expecting the drug to lower pain, then your brain will create chemistry that lowers pain. If you're expecting the drug to make you, you know, to gradually have an effect on your nervous system, then you will create chemistry that causes, you would create chemistry in your brain that causes that relaxing effect. So what happens is what you believe, what you expect to happen, you create chemistry to deliver that expectation. And that's what I think is amazing about this. That's crazy. It's crazy. And I guess this, this can work positively and negatively, I'm assuming. So like whether you think something will work or you think something won't work, like it will affect the chemistry and you will have, you know, so the drug is that baseline, but yeah. the amount it could work in your favor or against you is based on that intention. That what that Abs- thought. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can really, I mean, a lot of people do suppress the power, you know, of mainstream medicine or, or, or even alternative medicine by, by really not believing in it. And so your belief as well, if that's the baseline of whatever drug or therapy or thing you're using, then you can make it, as you pointed out, that good or you can suppress its power just because of your expectation. And there's also um, hearing about the difference because, I mean, I think I might have heard something about this years ago, but I didn't actually. Paracetamol versus Panadol. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was like just for anyone who doesn't know about this thing, we're talking about the exact same thing. What, what, what is the difference? Could you explain that? Well, uh, what happens is that there was a study done a number of years ago and it was on aspirin. And you can, you can map the figures onto things like paracetamol, ibuprofen and stuff. But basically what, what you find is if something is more expensive, like paracetamol and Panadol are the exact same thing, right? But you can buy paracetamol in supermarket in the, in, certainly in the UK for like 15p and Panadol's 10 times the price. But because it's 10 times the price, we have a little story in the head that says, if something's more expensive, then it must be better. And we've heard it so many times and we've actually had the direct experience of it. We've actually we've actually experienced uh, that paying more for an item of clothing and it lasts longer. So because we've really taken that on board in a deep level in our minds, when you buy a more expensive version of the same drug, so you, you give it a different name and make the packaging all fancy, multiply the price by 10 times, then it does actually work better because it's 10 times the price. But again, it's because of your mind, because you've, you've taken an idea into your head that says if something's more expensive, then it must be better. And it's again, it's your own mind that's making that, say, 10, 20, 30, 25 or so percent better. It's your own mind that's doing it. <laughs> Amazing, eh? I love it. I love it. It's so funny. Yeah. And these, th- th- this is what I find. Um, just I know in particular in the last sort of like five, ten years, like I'm, here, I'm just hearing more and more of these research and these studies which just turn things on their head. The things which we think we're being completely logical, we think this is like us making us our choice, but actually, yeah. you know, twenty five percent increase, and we're talking about the same thing. It's, it's just, it, it, yeah, it's mad. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there's a very, very clever study I know um, a few years ago, which looked at the link between stress and heart disease. But mm. this study was different because they added a question to it. Yeah. What, 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 was, what was that all about? Yeah, well, what happened was, well, normally if you can do an, a study, uh, and this is a kind of thing that's been done many, many times, is you can draw a comparison between uh, people's levels of stress, let's say over a, a long period of time, so let's say over 10 years, people would monitor the levels. You could say, how stressed do you tend to be? And and what you can do, you can track over that period, that decade-long period, and what you normally find is those who are most stressed tend to, ha- tend to have the shortest lifespan, 
right? And it, it's not something you see in day-to-day life as much as that, but over a population, statistically, what you tend to see is stress, increases in stress tends to translate to more heart disease, therefore a shorter lifespan. But this particular study, they weren't just looking at uh, asking people how what's your typical level of stress, say, over the last period of time. But they asked them another question. Do you believe that stress is bad for you? <laughs> and it turned out that the belief itself made all of, made the world of difference because you had those people who were really stressed and at the other end you had those people that were hardly, hardly stressed at all. But in those who were really stressed, but if they, those who were really stressed but who didn't believe that stress was bad for them, in fact, who actually had the belief that stress is good for them, the death rate was actually lower than in those who were hardly stressed at all but who believed that stress was bad for them. So even if you've hardly any stress but believe it's bad for you, that's actually worse for you than having a lot of stress but believing that it's good for you. And when the scientists actually extracted the statistics, it turned out that the belief in stress itself was the 15th leading cause of death in the United States. A belief. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not stress, but a belief in stress actually made it onto the top 20 of leading causes of death, a belief, a psychological thing. Isn't that fascinating, eh? It's crazy. I love it. Do you you just, do you love this line of work, this investigation, this finding stuff? Like, what do you say has been the sort of biggest, I don't know, paradigm shift, like, in the last sort of 10, 15 years for you? I mean, has there been an occasion where you're just, like, completely blown your mind? You know, several times. See, whenever I find, like, a study like that or a study like... you know, things like paracetamol or that blockbuster study with the cholesterol lowering. Whenever I hear something that I can't wait to share with people, that for me is paradigm shift. Even though it's something that I know and my knowledge of my knowledge and understanding of the mind-body connection has just gradually increased yeah. over, you know, I, I left the pharmaceutical industry in October 1999 and there's been a gradual increase in my, my breadth of knowledge, I suppose. But the paradigm shifts come every time I find a study that I cannot wait to tell you how amazing that is. is. And then it, it gets into my, the realisation of the implications get into my head and you start to realise how much this means for people in their lives. So if we could just learn how to tap into, how to harness this kind of stuff, because we're harnessing it all the time, but most of us are doing it in the negative. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and if we can understand the principles, what's going on, then we can kind of turn it around a wee bit. Yeah, like, like how you said, when you, you, you hear a study or hear information that you're just like, I can't wait to share. Like this morning at breakfast, um, I had like, you know, I had a lot of this like research and a lot of this, um, this information learning about your work, like fresh in my head. And actually over breakfast, I was sharing this around the kitchen table with some of these studies, just being like, can you believe this? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. Now, bit of a yeah, random segue, number one, kindness. Um, a major side effect of kindness is happiness. This has actually been now scientifically proven, isn't it, that kindness makes us happier. Yeah, yeah. And it does it for a number of reasons. I mean, I think when you do something kind, when you're kind, there's something emotional and spiritual that kind of feels good. But actually, neurologically, one of the... One of the things that's going on in the brain is that the belief that we're producing the brain's natural versions of morphine and heroin. So just like getting a high on drugs, you get a high out of connecting, out of being kind. And that that can explain what some scientists call helper's high, you know, but it it actually is a pharmacological high, (laughs) you know, in in the brain. But but that that's that's a side effect. But in the long term, uh, numerous studies done in numerous different ways have all confirmed the same thing that, that you said, Duncan, mm. that a kindness itself does actually make us happier. But the key is it does it in the long term. 
if we're consistent with it, then actually happiness gradually increases in the long term. Yeah, we get an instant hit from doing something kind because you feel good. You feel you feel warm and connected to the person, and, and it, there's a nice little you know feeling in, in the chest area. But if you do this consistently, not to gain from it, but because it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. then what happens is your your actual baseline happiness starts to increase. Your your deep sense of satisfaction and all that in life that is what gradually increases. It's the consistency that that's really important with the kind of stuff. And it's contagious, isn't it? Like this is, Absolutely. you know, the whole pay it forward kind of thing. But it, it kindness, uh, like leads to more kindness. And if you know, if if, if I you've done a kind thing to me, then I'm much more inclined to then go out and then do a kind thing to somebody else. And so, Absolutely. even on the micro scale, if you're just concentrating on just being kind, you are. I know it sounds ooh, head in the clouds, but you are literally changing a Absolutely. much bigger playing field. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's no question that that we are in, that life itself is deeply interconnected. You can't. There is no isolated acts. Mm. There are no isolated acts. So every act of kindness on on the deepest, more philosophical levels is is having an effect. Is changing the world, if you like. But on even the really primary level, even scientists at Harvard have measured this. You know how one act actually inspires another and they've actually measured it goes out to three degrees of separation now basically what that means is when you randomly help someone the chances are they will help someone else one degree who will help someone else two degrees who will help someone else is three degrees of separation three social steps (laughs) really cool eh? so if each person had four contacts then you would find one one act of kindness would affect four people times four times four is 64 people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we don't realise the impact that the ordinary person has several times a day when you do something nice. I love that. I love that. So the, the guys over at Harvard are obviously pretty, uh, pretty clever because I was, I was reading about the Harvard um, study, the piano study. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, doing, they're doing some cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I know one, one of my favourite pieces of research, actually, this is one of these paradigm shifts that you can't wait to tell people. And they had people playing five notes in a piano, like, you know, plunk, 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 well, just up and down the scale on and off, you know, for a couple of hours. And they do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And they find that the area of the brain connected to the finger muscles literally grows like a muscle. And by the Friday, it's literally a 30 to 40 times bigger than it was on the Monday. But a separate group of people, instead of playing the notes with their fingers, they do it in their mind. They just imagine the movement of their fingers and imagine the sound. They have their brain scanned every day as well. And it turns out that their brain in the same region connected to the finger muscles also increases in size by 30 to 40 times. And if you lay the, slide, the, the brain scan side by side, you really can't tell the difference between who played the notes and who imagined playing the notes. So literally, the muscles were actually... You, you're, you're, you're building your muscles even though there's absolutely no physical contact on them. Yeah, in fact, do you want to see the brain scans? Yeah, absolutely. I happen to have them on my iPhone. <laughs> you just... carry them around at all times. Well, <laughs> Where's David? Some... Yeah, he's got his brain scans. Yeah, because some people ask me, and so I tend to have them in my favourites. There we are. There. I don't know if you can see that. So on the top row, that that fi- that fingerprint that's increasing in size. Yeah. That's the area of the brain connected to the finger muscles. So as each person is playing the notes two hours a day that fingerprint region is increasing in size. That's the top two rows. The middle two rows are those who did it in their minds. There's literally no it's, difference, pretty much. And there's no there. difference. Versus a control group at the bottom who did neither. 
Okay, so okay, gotcha. So the bottom is the control where it's just bottom as just to prove that gotcha. Yeah. So in other words, the brain is not making a distinction between those who play the notes, the top two rows, and those who imagine playing notes. Because what you're that fingerprint increasing side, what you're seeing there is a phenomena called neuroplasticity where the region of the brain is actually increasing in size like a muscle, just like if you exercised a muscle and it would grow. So what it's saying here is you can do something with your fingers, with your muscles, or you can imagine doing the same thing. To your brain, it's exactly the same thing. And it's exerting a physical effect on your brain. So what is, what are, what are some of the practical implications of this? Um, I mean, we touched on some of them earlier, but like um, knowing this information, how does that change how we go about i don't know i don't really know what this question is i'm just thinking of it in the spot but so no, knowing it, I mean, is this so for example positive thoughts versus negative thoughts is this all tied in you know if we're if we're imagining something bad and bad happening i mean is that all like what what what, well, what are the implications the, of this do you think there's numerous implications because it turns out that imagining moving your fingers actually makes them stronger and numerous scientific studies have done that and they've measured an actual improvement in strength by just imagining moving your muscles. So you can see the implications, obviously, for one, people who've had a stroke, even Parkinson's disease, even spinal cord injuries, eh, and also sports people. In fact, you know, last year I did a talk at a, at a small corporate event and I, I was right after Sally Gunnell. I was the next speaker at Sally Gunnell, the Olympic gold medalist in 1992 Barcelona in the 400 metre hurdles. And Sally Gunnell gave, a talk, gave her talk and it was almost all about the mind-body connection. And she talked about, she said that 70% of her win, her victory in the, world, in the Olympic Games was mental. It was daily visualisation of her muscles doing exactly what she wanted them to do. And she was the first person, in the first athlete, professional athlete in the UK to start doing visualisation. Now they all do it. It's sort of part of the, the routine. Uh, so, but, and it was amazing because I was the very next speaker. And I wasn't even planning on talking about that, but I spent the first 10 minutes just scientifically validating what Sally Gunnell had just said uh, 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 thing. So there's an obvious implication. What you're seeing now is it's not just changing the brain. What you're seeing now is a, a physical effect on your body. So what, that's because the brain and the body are connected. So what about extending that even further? What about someone who's ill and who imagines the illness, the state of illness being converted into a state of wellness? Scientists are actually probing that. There's several scientific studies now that have looked not just at stroke and Parkinson's disease and spinal cord injury, muscular kind of things that involve muscular movement, but actually things like infections and things like, you know, deeper things inside the body and finding the same result. Even things like dieting, like weight loss, tricking the brain into thinking that you've eaten by imagining eating. Actually, to some degree, the brain thinks you are eating. And what happens is it turns down your appetite. So you end up eating less. So there's, there's lots of studies like this, and I've certainly collected several hundred over the years uh, of people who've actually used visualization like this, if you call it visualization, to help, to help their recovery from even serious diseases. And the standard process they use, if you call it a process, is they take a picture of illness and they turn it into a picture of wellness. So even people getting cancer, they imagine the tumors shrinking smaller and smaller and smaller and disappearing, smaller and smaller and smaller and disappearing. And before I, I go any further than that, I, I just say that they're not doing this instead of taking medical advice, because if, you, if you're sick, the, the most important thing is to take, take the best medical advice. But whatever advice they've got, whatever else they're doing, they're using their mind as well. So not necessarily, not instead of yeah. medical advice, but in addition to medical advice. But 
That is a common factor right across the board of all the people using visualization. They have an eye, a picture in their mind of illness and they turn it into a picture of wellness. And just like the piano study was plump, 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 repetitively, they do the same visualization every day over and over and over again. And with that, with that picture of you said they have a picture of illness in their mind and they have a picture of it getting well. There yeah. isn't um, a this isn't like a, a universal idea of what it is. For example, no. I think I heard you saying how one person might have the idea of you know, the cancer and then it, they've got this visualization of little piranhas coming along and, and nibbling at yeah. it. Somebody yeah. else might have it almost as like a big iceberg and then it's the sun melting it away. Another Absolutely. person might have it as lightning bolts, you know, which radiotherapy, you know, so it's whatever, whatever visualization techniques, which resonates, which works of them, Absolutely. that's going to be more powerful than just saying this is the way to do it. Absolutely. That's totally, totally right, Duncan. And it's good because that, that what that's really good because everyone thinks in their own way and not everyone visualizes in their own way. However you visualize it, whether you see in high definition or just get a vague kind of intentional sense of something, you're doing it right. And it doesn't matter what it looks like to you. As long as your end product is wellness, you're doing it right. Amazing. And Last, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you to explain one more study just before we go because it's it's another it's another great one. Like, you take two people who share an emotional bond of each other, be it husband and wife, mother and daughter, for example, and there's this crazy test called correlations. What, yeah. what it, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, because this tied tied on when you were saying earlier about how just interconnected the yeah. world is, and it's like just when we, we think our oh, things aren't interconnected, like it's, it's it's quite hard to work out this one otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, science is it's funny because science is actually moving closer towards uh, agreeing with, you know, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, philosophy of emptiness that basically says that everything is interconnected deeply at the most fundamentally profound levels. Everything is connected and therefore there is no separation between anything. And, and one of the, the great experiments in science that kind of not just quantum physics, but mainstream signs that back up that kind of idea had people who shared an emotional bond let's say it could be husband and wife mother and daughter even same-sex partners it doesn't matter as long as the people have an emotional bond and one goes in an mri scanner and the other's down the corridor so let's say for argument's sake it was a mother and daughter right so the mother is in the mri scanner the daughter's down the corridor she doesn't know that she's involved in the experiment so she's just sitting in the waiting room and uh, and all of a sudden the scientists just you know, it's called a startle response, you know, so just like a little make you jump kind of thing. And at that moment of, of startling, the daughter gets startled. Uh, the, the mother's brain picks up a flash in the visual cortex, which is the pro- bit that processes visual information. And it's called a correlation because what's happened is that the daughter has got startled, saw something, got startled, but the, hus- the, the mother's brain registered it in real time. And there's no way, I mean, like you said, they're different rooms. They, yeah. She didn't hear it. She didn't see it. There's not, there's not that. So there's, there's no relation in terms of they're in separate rooms, which is crazy. No. And, and these, these experiments are written up generally in science as correlations, as you pointed out, between the neural states of people separated by a distance. And it's, it's like almost like a, a scaled up version of what people call quantum entanglement, when you can take two particles, two paired particles, and separate them by like the width of the universe. And if you ping one of them, the other one instantly feels it, so to speak. And it's the same type of phenomena, but we're seeing it on a, on a, on a large scale rather than just a quantum scale. And, and it, that resonates very well with the Tibetan Buddhist ideas of emptiness. 
where they say at the deepest, most fundamentally profound levels, everything is interdependent and everything depends on everything else. And so nothing is isolated. Nothing is separate at all fact kind of thing. Man, I'm, I'm going to throw the same kind of question as earlier. Like when you hear that study, what kind of, what else does it make you think? What other implications? Like you, you see that, but as an isolated incident, but if that's connected, like are we, is that, you know, whatever, like how we treat each other, how we treat the universe, how we treat like nature. I mean, is what, what kind of implications does that make you think when you hear a study like that? That everything matters. That everything matters. Our collective thoughts, our collective intentions, not just our collective actions, but even the, the, the small things, seemingly insignificant things, there are no isolated events. That's what I would say, is there are no isolated events. Something that you that we feel is so insignificant, a, a, an exchange with someone down the street, you think is such an insignificant thing. There are no insignificant isolated events. Everything depends on everything else and everything affects everything else. And therefore, if we want to see, let's say, more fulfillment and happiness and peace in the world, we've got to be the source of that. We've got to start finding a way, not just being fulfilled and peaceful and happy ourselves, but, but helping other people to, to have that kind of state. And then what you see, because there are no isolated events, there are no individuals in that sense, then as we create that sense within ourselves and in our local environment, that is having a profound effect on the whole thing, on everything. I totally agree. Yeah. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Uh, I, I would say doing, doing things that are meaningful, to me, that get that give meaning for my life, but also balancing that up with having some fun with with play and and random things, you know, you know, I I find you know that like we need biodiversity, you know, for for survival of of the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel I need diversity as well. I need you know my my writing, my work, and my speaking, but I also need other things like play and relaxation time and and reading novels and and I I find diversity. Uh, works for me as long as a big part of that diversity a big part of that is doing something that's really meaningful and what is one thing all our listeners can do today that have a massive positive effect on their lives uh, just be kind on purpose because you know it changes the world I answer <laughs> last but not least how can people stay in touch find out more about you and your work uh, well, my website is drdavidhamilton.com. I'm on Facebook as well, which is David R. Hamilton PhD as my Facebook handle. Is that you call it a handle? <laughs> uh, but you can, ac- <laughs> you can access it through my website anyway. I'm pretty crap on social media. I'm, yeah, I need to sort of uh, handle a handle. Yeah, it is. I think I think it's Twitter handle definitely. Yeah. yeah well, well, whatever. <laughs> David, this has been so fun. I'm sorry for just like firing random studies at you nonstop, but I just like, nah, boom, I've got one chance. I'm going to, let's, let's, let's talk about some of these things, but no, it's been, it's been amazing. I really enjoyed it. Me too, Duncan. Me too.